When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we explore the story of an old duck hunter with Keith Crowley. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 218. All right, welcome in. Welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We've got an excellent show coming up in just a moment with author, photographer, writer, upland bird hunter, and more, Keith Crowley. And we're going to be talking about someone you may or may not have heard of, the late Gordon McQuarrie. Stay tuned for that. But first, thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Those of you out there making contributions to the show, supporting my effort in keeping these episodes coming your way. Patrons of the show are eligible for monthly giveaways, get some bonus content. When Nick Adair and I get around to doing the occasional bonus episode where we have been mixing in some video stuff, some clips from our hunting seasons, talking a little bit about bird and dog interactions. That's been fun. And of course, we set everybody up with some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers as a little thank you as well. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, don't forget to leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to the show, follow the show, whatever you can do in the podcast app or player you are listening on. All little things that just take a moment and also help to promote and grow the show. All right, I'm coming to you today amidst one of the dreaded April ice storms we sometimes get around here. Mother Nature is doing some pruning today. Trees getting covered up in ice. We're losing limbs. Stuff's falling. We had no power for a few hours here. I'm back online for the time being. We'll see how long that lasts. Got the pellet stove running in the background. Thought that was done for the season, but it simply seemed necessary on this dreary April day. 
that's all right. We've got good times ahead. We've got a gun fitting event coming up at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp in the first part of May. That is completely full, but I'm looking forward to spending some time out there and meeting with some customers of Upland Gun Company and listeners of the show. And I will likely be dovetailing that with some turkey hunting as well. So really looking forward to that. Doesn't feel much like turkey hunting today, but it's just around the corner for myself. And I am, I suppose, now even more excited for that. I don't imagine weather like this to be very good for birds this time of the year, sort of at the end of the long, long winter when food availability, I assume, is pretty low. It's kind of an added stressor. It's not all that cold. It's 31 degrees here, just cold enough for the rain slash snow slash sleet to freeze, whatever it is that's coming down. I can hear it pelting off the roof of the birdshot studio, but I don't know how stressful this is on the birds. We've got. I'm looking out the window at a robin. We got woodcock that have been back for the last week or so. Do they get caught up in all this? I don't know. Maybe somebody out there, biologist or somebody with more knowledge than I, could chime in for all of us backyard observers. The birds out my window don't look all that bothered by it, but again, far from ideal. And juxtaposed to the lovely weather we had last week, which you will hear my guest and I talk about on today's show, seems like a completely different world outside today but such is the way of life in the wild that in mind let's talk wildlife and adventure and much more with our guest today keith crowley as i mentioned moments ago keith is an author photographer writer upland bird hunter many things of interest to our listeners here on birdshot i brought keith on the show today as i had recently completed his biography of gordon mccrory the story of an old duck hunter now you may or may not have heard of Gordon McQuarrie. I had not until maybe 10 years ago when a co-worker mentioned him to me as a duck hunting and fly fishing writer primarily. However, as you'll learn on the show today, Gordon McQuarrie grew up a hop, skip, and a jump across the tip of Lake Superior from me in Superior, Wisconsin, and eventually became a writer and wrote many, many stories, articles, essays about northern Wisconsin and the woods, waters, and wildlife here. I learned a lot more about him reading Keith's book, and if you're interested in Gordon McQuarrie, I would highly recommend it. Forward to the book was written by another author I mentioned here on the show quite a bit, Michael McIntosh, and I won't get into it too much today because Keith is a much better teller of the Gordon McQuarrie story than I. But despite the fact that McQuarrie wrote a lot about duck hunting and fly fishing, he mixed in some partridge now and again as well, and I think you'll find his story quite interesting. There's a number of McQuarrie books still readily available, some of them harder to find than others. But if the conversation today piques your interest, they are definitely worth seeking out and acquiring if you can. So I'll leave it at that. We'll let Keith tell the rest of the story. And with that said, I'd like to welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Keith Crowley. I am extremely excited to welcome to the Birdshot Podcast, Keith Crowley. How are you doing this morning? Doing fantastic. It's it's a, a great spring morning here, finally, after a very long winter. We've got 60s, and I can see bare ground in spots, so can't be bad. It is. It's unbelievable. A very common theme of lots of conversations having uh, between folks up here in the North Country where Keith and I reside. And yeah, I I feel like I'm I'm in a dream at this point, like I'm going to wake up and we're going to be buried in snow. But uh, this has been quite a magical couple days. Yeah, definitely. Well, it, it could still happen too. We get a lot of 
April and even May snowstorms. But right. I always take the, the first the first real sign of spring for me is when the woodcocks show up, and they they came back last week, so they're never wrong. They they know when it's spring, so I trust the woodcock. Yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. It's interesting. I I saw my first one last Friday, which was I'm, I'm getting close to a week ago. And at that time, we I knew the warm temperatures were on the way, but they hadn't hit yet. And here, we had very little bare ground at that point, just a spot or two. And in hindsight, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, that the woodcock either, they were just very eager to get back or they timed it perfectly because now we've had three, four days of 60 degree weather and the snow is, there's a lot of snow to melt, but it's going fast. I think they know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, I think they, the biologists I've talked to say that they, they can always find um, moist, unfrozen ground at this time of year under the pines or any place that snow really hasn't heavily sure. accumulated. So they know what they're doing. Yep. They've yep. been doing it for a long time. And I think it's pretty commonly understood. At least I, this realization for me came when I was I, – one time I spent a couple of days down in Louisiana hunting, and the woodcock down there – you know, they're not battling with winter conditions or snow, but they are moving around. They kind of hop around and, and look for the ideal conditions. And I think they do that as the snow recedes uh, in the north and they kind of, they'll go up and they'll go back and they hopscotch around a little bit, I think. Absolutely. Yep. They, they, they bounce around and some will even go back south a little ways to find what they're looking for. Yep. So it's, it, you know, this telemetry study stuff they do with them is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, before we dive in too deeply here, Keith, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Listeners may have heard of you. You're an author, photographer, uh, a man of many talents, by by my assessment. Well, I don't know about that, but I, <laughs> I've had I've lived a good outdoor life. That's that's the, yeah. the thing I've been able to turn my my passions for hunting and fishing and photography into a career. So yeah, I have several books out. I know we're going to talk about the Gordon McQuarrie book that unbelievably is 20 years old wow. this year. <laughs> so, yeah, that even set me back when I realized it was 20 years ago. <laughs> I have a couple of different wildlife books out. Uh, wildlife in the Badlands is a, a book I've done for the uh, the National Park Service out there. And, uh, and I've got numerous magazine articles dozens in fact by now it's hundreds of magazine articles and thousands of photos published in various publications all over the place so you probably even if you haven't you don't recognize my name you've probably seen my work i've had some covers on the big big magazines and lots of spreads and so you've you've probably seen my photography even if you don't know my name i would i would think that's a fair bet i was on your uh, media website lodgetrailmedia.com did i get that right Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's yeah, I was correct. perusing around on there. And um, I, of course, had seen some of your stuff before, but um, yeah, there was a lot of stuff there, a lot of magazine covers. And I, I had come across the, I think I came across the Wildlife in the Badlands book when I was uh, digging up my copy of the story of an old duck hunter, Gordon McQuarrie. So I saw that I wanted to, wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit. Maybe we'll talk Western sharp tails as, as well as uh, Midwestern sharp tails a little bit. But folks have more than likely seen your senior photography at one point or another if they're paying attention to some of the usual magazines and publications and all that stuff uh, i think yeah, i uh, go ahead i'll just pl- let me plug the, the the website they really should go to is my my primary hunting and fishing website is crowleyimages.com okay 
And if they were to go to that website, there's a tab that's called in print. And if they click on that, they'll see, you know, a lot of covers and a lot of stories that they might have actually read. Um, They're all hunting and fishing related. So um, the Lodge Trail um, website is uh, use that as my primary wildlife website for a long time. And I try to keep the hunting side and the wildlife side separated for obvious reasons so yeah. sometimes yeah. the wildlife people don't want to see the dead critters uh and sure the, the hunting publications that's what they want so uh i keep them separated but yeah crowley images is a better site to go to if you're hunting specific if you're looking for that kind of thing yeah uh there's some beautiful images here i'm just glancing at it quickly you've been all over the place keith I travel a lot uh, you know i've toned that down now my wife retired a few years ago and i kind of have stepped back from all the travel, but I was, I was gone six months a year for many, many years. And and so uh, it's kind of nice to not be under the pressure of traveling all the time, but I've seen some wonderful things in Africa and Alaska and just all over the place. I've, I've been really lucky to, to witness some of the incredible things I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this, this speaking of this morning and, and nice weather, you had mentioned to me before we hit record, did you get any photos of sharp tails, Wisconsin sharp tails, that is, this morning? I did, but they're a little bit out on the le- the, the lek that they're trying to establish up in our area up here on the, on the Barrens. It's a little bit too far, and even with 700 millimeters of lens, mm. uh, it that's, that's pretty tough. It's much better if you can get a blind, which we have some of those set up around up here, and then you can have them dancing almost on top of you yeah. so i have lots of photos of wisconsin sharptails there's nothing that makes me happier than to see these native birds doing their thing this is my favorite time of year for that yeah i, I can imagine i was chatting with our mutual buddy mike uh, about a week ago and i was curious and, I, and last week again ahead of this this warm weather that has really taken a beating to the snow he he had said there were birds on the lek, and I was curious if they were. I assumed they were still on top of the snow, and he he confirmed that they were still dancing on top of twenty four inches of snow. What's the current status? Uh, are you seeing bare ground in that area yet? Not not yet, not yet. but it'll. You know, we we may hit seventy today, right. so um, I would expect that there's going to be bare ground patches all over. But yeah, they're still dancing on top of the snow. It makes for some unique images. You right. know, I've got lots of photos of them dancing in the grass, so it's it's kind of nice to see them pho- photograph them out there on bare. I mean, it looks like the tundra. It looks like there should be snowy owls and and uh, muskox running around out there, and instead it's sharp tails dancing. Yeah, yeah, I've 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 yet to get to a spring lack. It's kind of on my list. There's a there's a somebody here locally that I think he might have a blind or two reserved and kind of threw an invite out to me. I'm not sure where, but uh, I want to try to make that a priority. I would just I would love to see that. And oh, you yeah, you absolutely have. That's one of the greatest rites of spring is watching sharptails dance. I took my wife along for the first time. Like I said, she retired just a few years ago, and yeah. last year. I took her along and had her sit in the blind with me, and she was absolutely amazed at the spectacle. The sounds and the sights, they make noises. You can't even believe it's a bird making the sounds. So um, it, it's a spectacular rite of spring. Oh. So I encourage you to do it. If you've got a blind, if you've got, got access to a blind on an established lek, you definitely want to partake of that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I was going to ask you about the sound. One of my favorite things about sharp tails in my 
you know, last handful of years going out and hunting them when they fly, everybody, you know, the chuckle or the laugh. I just, I just love that about sharp tails. And so I imagined there, and I, I have seen videos of, of lecking. So I know there's, there's additional sounds and stuff that go on on the, when they're dancing in the spring, but I would, I'd love to see and hear that for sure. Yeah. They, you know, they make a, as they, they, they stop their feet and their wings are out and they do these tight little circles. You've seen it. But they, they make this rattling sound. And mm. I'm not sure. I think it comes from their tail feathers. I don't know, but it, they rattle. And it, it really is amazing that the sound's coming from a bird. Um, and it can be quite loud. So <laughs> it's fun. You have to do it. Everybody should do it. If you get a chance to sit in a blind right. on either a sharp tail, a prairie chicken lack, a, a sage grouse lack, all the prairie grouse have some form of uh, springtime dance they do. Yeah. And they're all a little different. And they all make different sounds. But, oh, I just, uh, it's one of my favorite things to do in the spring. What about the Wisconsin prairie chickens? Have you, have you been down there yet this spring? I have not. I, I've been down around Buena Vista doing woodcock work, helping with uh, banding. Okay. But I have never photographed uh, the, the chickens down there. In fact, I'm going to be out in South Dakota photographing chickens and sharp tails in about a week and a half now, okay. assuming the weather cooperates. So I do most of my chicken photography out there. And that's really inter- interesting because the sharp tails and the chickens out there are intermixed. And in fact, they'll even interbreed. And I have photos of some hybrids. Um, it, it, that's really fascinating. They wow. look half sharp tail, half prairie chicken. So it's, it's a curious looking bird. Uh, they tell me that they can breed, but I, I can't prove it. They they have trouble attracting the hens. That's the problem. Mm. They don't know if they're a chicken or a sharp tail, so they can't attract either of them. I'm trying to, I don't know if I... I don't know if I have come across that or read that anywhere. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm just kind of going through my mind on some of the reading I've done on sharp tails and chicken. I don't know if I've ever ever knew that about them. Well, if you even if you were to go to my website and t- use the search function and do hybrid uh, sharp tail or hybrid prairie chicken, you'll see photos of what I'm talking about. Ah. It's there. It's an unusual looking bird. They have a short, stubby tail, not quite square like a chicken. Um, there's a slight point to it, but the neck sacks, rather than being orange or purple, like a sharp tail, and they have slight horns like a chicken on the top of their head, but nothing like a, an adult male prairie chicken does. So there, it's an odd looking bird. Wow. Yeah. I pulled it up. The great feature on your website, the search feature. And yeah, it, it's almost like, I don't know what I'm, I can definitely see the spotted feathers on the wings that are all sharp tail looking but then yeah but they have a barred breast right like. that's it yeah that's the the barred breast is what throws you off and that's so, yeah. so prairie chicken like <laughs> i probably wouldn't have known what i was looking at either but the biologist who who uh told me where to go out there he he forewarned me he said you know there's a few hybrids around out there and if you get lucky you might get some photos otherwise i would have been confused too it's like what am i looking at yeah gosh that is that is so interesting and, and i've never hunted prairie chickens but i've i've of course done enough reading to know you know it often comes up field identification and especially in minnesota where we have some interesting uh, overlap with the birds and you don't want to shoot one uh, versus the other but that barred that barred feathering pattern is Oh, I've got a I got a fox just cruising through my backyard right now. That'd be a good photo for you, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of year. Everybody's hungry. Yeah, exactly. And, and I was gonna say I I was looking out right before I called you. There's a little ridge behind my 
office here. Oh, he's he's looping around. Now I got a really good view of him. There, the I have not seen the deer much this winter. I think given this, just given the snow depth, but now they're starting to to make their rounds as the snow has has receded here. Oh, yeah, he's hunting back there. Anyways, the <laughs> the, the the barred the barred feathers on the prairie chicken are a very uh you can you can tell right away and and i guess i've never seen a prairie chicken to my knowledge on the wing but that this hybrid bird is it's very clearly a mix of the two and it's quite interesting yeah well chickens so i've hunted chickens quite a bit out in south dakota and um and when they get up uh, the first thing I always notice, first of all, they're darker. They tend to be darker overall okay. than sharp tails. They don't make the the chucka 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 sound that the that the sharp tails the laugh sound. Right. But they also that square tail is the real indicator. I mean, you see that square tail and you just automatically know they look shorter than a sharp tail in flight because they don't have those long tail feathers in the back and and it's pretty it's pretty clear what you're looking at if you're close enough. I mean, if you're close enough to shoot, it's really not hard to tell them apart. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, um, that brings up an interesting point. I thought about the, the laughing sharp tail flying away, the chucka chucka. It, it seemed to me, I, I think I was under the impression after my first few years that they pretty much did that all the time. But now I feel like I've, I've maybe flushed a few or something changed in my mind where I, it's not a hundred percent that they always make that sound when they're flying. Do you have any, could you comment on that? Well, no. Yeah. I've heard them make that sound when they've been incoming too. Okay. So I, I think they do it just in flight periodically. I'm not sure if it's, if it's a warning to other birds, I don't know what it is, but I've had them inbound where I've been sitting in a blind and they'll be making that sound as they come in. Yeah. So in fact, that's how you spot them coming is you'll hear the sound first. So I, I'm, I don't know, not being a biologist, I couldn't swear right. what, why they make the sound, but, um, I have heard them doing it when they weren't, uh, being chased by something right let's put that way. right yeah and yeah and they do it enough to where it's you you're very likely to hear it if you spend any time at all chasing and flushing sharp tails and i just i had again I, in my mind i had thought it was it was a hundred percent they were always making that sound and so that would be a way to tell the difference but then i think that may not be you know you never probably want to uh, put all yeah. your put all your eggs in one basket you want to be sure of a few different things there are yeah there are times that i've flushed them while hunting them that they have not right laughed at me as, as yeah, they went yeah. away. <laughs> but yeah so i i would be i would not probably use that as a identifier yeah. myself okay so back to the important stuff are you going to be out on the deck at happy hour tonight soaking up that 70 degree weather drinking a beer uh, yeah, maybe not a beer. It might be a gin and tonic. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I will be. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can imagine. So it's uh, it's going to be a very very nice evening down down on the lake. You, are you at the lake full time essentially, other than in the winter? Right. Yeah, we we are here full time. In 2018, we moved up when we, when my wife retired. We just sold the house. We had a house down in Twin Cities. Okay. And we sold that and moved up immediately. We've had this place up here for 25 years, um, and you know it's it's we call it the cabin. It's a small lake home. Sure. So yeah, we're right on the on the Eau Claire chain of lakes. Okay. And uh, and yeah, there's this morning now. There's geese honking all over, and there's yeah. swans flying around, and and the deer come and go and yeah it's it's a busy place at this time of year and we can't wait for the 
for the ice to come off so we can start kayaking around. We see some pretty cool things, lots of otters and things like that mm, at yep. this time of year. Yeah, we've had our we've had otters. I've I don't see them very often, but we've had otters on our lake, which is I don't. It's not not too far from from where you're at. But uh, I was I wanted to sort of segue there. And do, are you a, a Wisconsin native, Minnesota native? What's a what's your backstory? How did you, how did you get hooked on all this stuff, Keith? Well, I'm a Minnesota native. Okay. I grew up in the west western suburbs of the Twin Cities. I was born in at the time in in the early 60s when i was born it was a little town called osseo okay yeah, um, yeah now it's a suburb now it's you know it's been surrounded and encompassed by the city so sure. it's it's part of the west metro in the twin cities and I spent my whole you know youth there and um and worked in a variety of sporting goods stores when i was a teenager uh, the old burger brothers stores and there was a store in Wyzetta called Bell's Hunting and Fishing. When I was 18 years old, I got a job there. It was a fantastic experience. And so I've been involved in hunting and fishing my whole life. I should I should probably start out by saying my dad was, you know, uh, he was nuts about rough grouse. He, he okay. didn't really care about anything else. It was, it was odd. You could get him to hunt pheasants, but you had to twist his arm. I don't think he ever shot a woodcock in his life. <laughs> uh, he just loved rough grouse hunting and his entire life that was the high point of his year was was hunting rough grouse in october and november and even up to his dying day i mean one of the very last conversations i had with him when he was in the hospital for the last time was he wanted to know how the grouse numbers were you know that uh, that was his passion and so i did grow up hunting uh you know i started out with grouse and woodcock and sharp tails in minnesota back then mm. sharp tails were legal game in the in the mid 70s when i started hunting and so we hunted a little bit of everything there were hungarian partridge yeah. lots of pheasants back then so uh it was it was a good time to grow up hunting in minnesota subsequently we moved in the early 90s i think in 1991 we moved just to hudson the wisconsin side of the river okay and and so yeah i've been a minnesota guy my whole life primarily we're the living in wisconsin now <laughs> right right yeah you you cross the border which i used to i maybe would would have frowned upon that a few years ago but now uh my heart has been swept away a little bit by uh macquarie country if you will and and uh yep. we've got the family yep. cabin over there too and i've realized a, a whole world of uh northwoods beauty that i was missing <laughs> being a duluth yeah, guy it, it is. It's a. It's a beautiful area. Well, Duluth. You know, that's you, tough to have a town that beats Duluth for outdoor recreation. Yeah, it's a nice balance. It is, but Macquarie Country is. You know, I've been. I had been reading about it since. You know, I guess I probably read my first Macquarie book in the late 1970s. Okay, and I've been reading about it since then. And so when my wife and I got married in the mid 80s. We we came up and started looking for a, a lake place up here and and found one. So <laughs> we've been up here ever since in one form or another. We had a different smaller cabin on a smaller lake in the eighties and early nineties, and then subsequently sold that and and bought the place we're in now. Okay, okay, cool. Well, we'll we'll get to that. I when you were growing up west of the Twin Cities, were the sharp tails kind of in and around there? Were you traveling to go hunt them? Mm-hmm. I had my mom's side of the family was all farmers and, and they were all farmers kind of between the Twin Cities and St. Cloud. Okay. So Monticello and Rogers and St. Michael and Albertville and Buffalo and out in that area. And we would occasionally 
run into sharp tails there. It was pretty rare. We got into Huns a lot more mm. when we were pheasant hunting. So interesting. There were a lot of Huns back then. Um, but Pine County had lots and lots of sharp tails. And so you would run into them when you're rough grouse hunting. When we were hunting for rough grouse and woodcock, you would come come to a clearing and a half a dozen sharp tails would get up. And so very first bird I ever killed in my life actually was a sharp tail. No kidding. Up there in, in, Pine, yeah, in Pine County. So when, so, so is Pine County, it, is that where Pine City is? Am I, I got that right? Hinkley, Hinkley Sandstone, right. Okay. That, that area, Askov, and yeah. you know, that, that area is, you know, and there towards the Wisconsin borders where we did most of our hunting. Okay. And and there used to, and there still are sharp tails. Right. Minnesota Sharp Tail Grouse Society does, you know, habitat work there. There's they're trying to keep them in the area. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I would have to double check this, but that that's technically the eastern zone for Minnesota sharp tails, and I don't know if there's a season there anymore. It was very limited. Uh, I, yeah, recently. I, I kind of doubt it. Not being in the minutes on the Minnesota side anymore, I don't follow it that yeah. closely. But I doubt it. That population's taken taken a nosedive. I think kind of like our birds here in, right. in northern right. Wisconsin for for quite a while were on where they were on thin ice. They were really close to being extirpated. So yeah. uh, we're doing a little better now, which is good. Yep. Um, what did your dad call grouse? Did he call them grouse, or was it partridge, or what did he call them? He called them roughs. He okay. always called them roughs. He never even bothered with roughed grouse. It was I knew it. He was he wanted to go hunting, and it was roughs. Right. Everybody over here on the Wisconsin side calls them partridge. Yeah. You know that that's kind of the old. You know, Macquarie called them that too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, it's, it's just regional differences. I know on the on the uh, New England coast too. A lot of guys call them partridge there. So yeah, or pats or yeah, pats. Yep. And yeah. if you get into the southern Appalachians, um, it's you know some people actually call them pheasants. Down right, there. mountain so, pheasants. I've heard that. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> so, so it's it, all it, regional stuff. But yeah, yeah. My dad called them roughs. That's all he ever said. Let's go rough hunting. So that's that's what we do. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's yeah. Partridge is, is the word for me that, that brings me back. Cause that's, that's what my grandpa called them. My dad called them. And so I just always have a special place in my heart for the word partridge. <laughs> I use it interchangeably with yeah. roughs. Now, you know, I, I call them partridge probably half the time yeah. and that's McCory's influence. Cause he always called them that. Yeah. So good segue there to, we'll, we'll chat a little bit about McCory and I suppose we should tee this up and, and who better to tell the listeners a little bit about Gordon McQuarrie than the guy that, that essentially wrote the book on him. Uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about Gordon McQuarrie and then we'll kind of tie in where these references are coming from and why he's of interest to uh, folks like you and me. Right. Yeah. Not everybody knows who he is now. Uh, he's gone a long time. He was one of the original golden age of outdoor writing guys who came up in the 20s, wrote through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He died in 1956, so he's been gone a long time. But he wrote a lot of very timeless stories, including a series of of well, now they're in book form. Originally, they were magazine articles about the old Duck Hunters Association, which turns some people off if they're not duck hunters. Right. But frankly, the old Duck Hunters Association, they hunted deer and they fished for trout and they fished for muskies and they hunted rough grouse and they hunted everything under the sun. Macquarie was a very well-versed um, outdoorsman. Yeah. He was the outdoor editor of the Milwaukee Journal for 20 years. 
And in fact, he was the first outdoor editor in any major newspaper in, in the nation. Uh, his sole job was just to go hunting and fishing and write about it for the paper from 36 to 56 when he passed away. And so he went everywhere. He, he hunted and fished in Alaska and he went to Georgia for quail and he, Alabama for quail. And he was in the Dakotas all the time chasing pheasants. And he was a well-rounded sportsman. And so when people hear the old Duck Hunters Association, they they kind of assume oh, it's just a bunch of duck hunting stories and they are anything but. He wrote a lot of stories about rough grouse and woodcock and pheasants and, you know, he ran the gamut when it came to hunting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I know that my first, I didn't come across him a long time ago or anything. I, didn't, I don't think I, I mean, I'm, you know, I probably saw the name growing up or something mentioned in the paper, but never really paid much attention to it until a, a co-worker of mine I was working in the Twin Cities he was asking me he knew I was a big hunter not necessarily a duck hunter but he he kind of pointed out that uh the the old duckers association and and the books and the stories and that he wrote a lot about Wisconsin and that's that sort of you know he he had a love for Wisconsin that never left him and um you wrote about it in the book and he wrote about it that it was he he felt it was at while he was there, it was some of the best hunting and, and fishing in the world and, and some of the best country around. And, um, that, uh, that kind of stuff draws me in just, again, you, you have a connection there in geography and, um, I dove in and very quickly I picked up, I think the sporting treasury book, one of those, and it's lots of fly fishing on rivers that, that I know in this area and, plenty of duck hunting and the mention of partridge and woodcock here and there, but the, he's got a style and an appreciation that I think folks listening to this, if they've read many of the books that we've talked about on this podcast, they would, they would find something of interest in, in McCory's work as well. Yeah, he was not, he was atypical of most writers when he started doing these stories for, you know, field and stream and outdoor life and all the big magazines back in the thirties there weren't a lot of guys writing in the style and about the subject matter that he was. Yeah. He was writing about hunting, but he was writing about the experience Yeah, far more than he was. Um, one of my favorite quotes, and it's kind of the quintessential McCory quote is, um, I'm going to try to do this off the top of my head. Uh, some people ask why men go hunting. They must be the kind of people who seldom get far from highways what do they know of the tryst a hunting man keeps with the wind and the trees and the sky? Hunting, the means are greater than the end, and every hunter knows it. And that's Macquarie in a nutshell. The means are greater than the end. He, he, yeah, they came home with a lot of ducks and trout and killed a deer now and then, but that wasn't the point. It never was for him. He was all about the experience. And that was rare back then. He kind of created a mold that's, you know, a lot of outdoor writers, uh, Gene Hill and those kind of people followed in his mm -hmm. footsteps later on and and created some wonderful hunting literature. Not any, I can't think of anybody who was writing that way back in the 1930s. This is in the Depression when, you know, people are people are starving. And he's writing about, yeah, we're not out there to kill things. We're out there to, you know, to keep a tryst with the wind and the trees and the sky. Yeah. You know, it's it's really remarkable to have that mindset at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think so. So here's another one. Actually, I have your uh, I've got your photo essay. This was in the the RGS magazine 
2017, and I, I came across this on Keith's website and asked him to send it to me. So here's here's a similar quote with a with a partridge connection. The man kneeling in the autumn leaves dressing his first partridge should know that he is of the elect, that he has entered that Valhalla of sport where the best is hard to get and the getting the best part of it. Again, tying tying back to the experience in a in a time where it was it was much more about either either straight survival struggling or um you know bag limits and and you know piling up wildlife and game it was it was not about the things that Macquarie was writing about as i understand it no that's exactly right you that's the essence of his work you know he most of his old duck hunter stories were based around his father-in-law mm. who he called Mr. President, right, of the Old Duck Hunters Association. Al Peck was his father-in-law, and Al was the president. And Mr. President, every time he shot a grouse, the first grouse of the day, and this he's the this is the first guy I know who'd ever done this. He would he would stroke the feathers, he'd fan out the tail, he'd he'd lift the bird, you know, lift it and weigh it, kind of heft it up and down, and then he'd bury his nose in the breast feathers and take a big whiff of that grouse. Now, I, nobody was writing about that in 1936. Or right. whatever, you know, it, they were there for the experience. And there's a there's a really good quote about um, there's a story called A Brace of Peace. Yes. And and that story, he talks of uh, uh, Mr. President being the philosopher he is, talks about, you know, um, they each had two birds and and Mr. President says to Macquarie, sure, sure, we can we can get them, but we've got a brace apiece, a brace apiece. Who shall ask for more? Two birds is enough. Right. Yep. So a brace apiece is just I mean, what a great philosophy to have. And and back then, nobody, very few people were hunting rough grouse in the 1930s. Um, the populations were very cyclical then as now. And there were closed seasons a lot of closed seasons on rough grouse back then. So Mr. President, you know, is one of, one of the original conservationists, I guess. You know, we don't need to kill a limit of five, which is what it was back then. Uh, two apiece is more than enough. Yeah. But that, I guess that's why, that, that's what always attracted me to Macquarie's writing is that he just wasn't, he's, he wasn't a game hog. He wasn't a sky buster. He didn't care whether they came back with limits of anything. It was about the experience. Yeah, I'll throw I'll throw one more out there while we're doing quotes because this one <clears throat> this one struck a chord with me and I had not I don't think I had I had come across this quote till I was reading in your book but it's in your essay again and the listeners will know why when I get to the end but partridge hunters know the remedy the remedy is walnut and steel oiled leather baggy canvas jacket and the stinging smell of nitro hanging in the hazel brush <laughs> and i have got a i've got like a mini love affair with hazel brush and it's uh, it's become i don't even really know where i picked it i i assume like at, at times i wonder if i just made it up or if i heard it somewhere but to hear to hear or to read that in macquarie's words i know i'm i'm not crazy <laughs> <laughs> no, and that is one of the most evocative. Uh, when I, the very first time I read his work, that was one of the quotes I read, and that just it, it, that quote actually reminds me of my dad. Yeah, and so it's very emotional for me. It is that is so evocative that writing, the stinging smell of nitro hanging in the hazel mm. brush. I mean, no kidding. Who can't relate to that if you're a grouse hunter? Yeah, yeah, um, and, and that, it's just wonderful. Yeah, knowing knowing this again, this area, the hazel brushes, um, it's so uh, so tied to to the 
covers in this part of the world. It's not universal across the entire rough grouse range in the same way it is here. So it just kind of, uh, it hits, it hits really close to home, which is cool. Yeah. I've had to fight my way through it more often than, <laughs> than I like to admit it's, yeah. it's wicked head high stuff. It's yep. hard to shoot through. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. It's in the early season when, when the hazel brush still has its leaves, you, you, you know, you could make it a, come up with a reason to almost stay home, but once the leaves come down, then it, then things get interesting. <laughs> You know, I have a story about that, too. I had a um, a dog. Now, this is five dogs ago, a black lab that I was out on a just a really rainy, wet day in the 90s with this dog. I actually may have even been the late 80s. And, and I knocked down a bird in the hazelbrush. And I'd already knocked down a couple, and she had found them. But we knocked down one. I knew I'd hit it well. And we could not find that bird. And we looked for an hour for that bird. And... We came home, disappointed, lost a bird, hated it. I had two or three others, mm. um, and this rough grouse is out there, and it just gnawed at me. I took her back out there that evening, and sure enough, she found that bird in the hazel brush, and it was so thick. I, she was five feet from me, and I could not see her. Wow. I could just hear her rustling around, and she recovered that bird. I was, it was one of my best grouse hunting memories, and you just sparked that memory. In yeah, me. I love it. I love it. I haven't thought about that in years. <laughs> Yeah, the the hazelbrush can, especially in some of the some of those sand sandy soils, sand country stuff. You can you can get hazelbrush, and I, I guess I've seen it on both soil types around here. But it it can be really really thick, <laughs> and the grouse love it. Yeah, the it. sand. Yeah, where we are in the sand country, it's it's prevalent. It's really everywhere. So yeah, um, and it's not fun to walk through, but the birds love it, and good for them. Indeed, uh, yeah. they need places to go. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I, I think. You know, there's, there's a, of course, a lot to like about the writing of Gordon McQuarrie. But I think the thing that, that right away, before I knew all the backstory and had all these additional reasons to kind of, uh, you know, buy into sort of what he was writing about is his sense of humor. I mean, in the Sporting Treasury book that I have, uh, the with the, the interactions with Mr. President, his father-in-law, and his self-deprecating sense of humor is is just you know really 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 appealing, um, and that's that's a key part of of a lot of his work. Absolutely, yeah. He was he always played the straight man. He was the fall guy for yeah. Mr. President. <laughs> he was the, the butt of a lot of jokes. Um, McCory had a had a great sense of humor, and it was very gentle. It wasn't, you know, he didn't slap you in the face with it. Everything yep. was very, you know, kind of subtle and subdued, but just makes you want to you wanted to be there. You wanted to be with him and Mr. President in particular. You just wanted to be there. That's you know, kind of the goal of every writer is to make the reader want to be part of the story. Mm-hmm. And boy, I sure feel that with Gordon McCory's work. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, he was kind of he was kind of a master of that. Again, it. There's a lot of images come to mind, and again, I've done some duck hunting, but it's the it's certainly uh, um, not something I've pursued in recent years, just because I'm kind of head over heels on upland hunting, and we only have so much time. But I just there's <laughs> images that come to my mind of just you know pouring rain and and McCory up at three and four in the morning and walking across the street and getting ready to go duck hunting and digging out decoys from the old garage, and um, th- there's a, another story about something something about the his father-in-law stealing his pair of waders because his had a hole in it and just little trick, tricks and pranks yeah. that were played on each other and, and then complaining to mccory when mr president put a hole in mccory's pair yeah. of waders. <laughs> you had a lot of nerve giving me leaky waders right yeah <laughs> yeah that that's kind of the, the recurring theme through all of it is mr president was a real jokester and a prankster and 
and McCory was the was the butt or many you know there were a lot of characters in those stories yeah and for a long time you know I wasn't sure whether those those people were real but in doing the biography and in subsequent research even in the last 20 years almost every person he calls by name in one of those stories is identifiable it was a real person who lived here mm. living here now full time I hear stories about these people all the time Hank Kaler is in a lot of Macquarie's stories and Hank was a real guy. He was a real handyman up here. He built a lot of the cabins and that was that the guy that was stone. building the chimneys and stuff. That's it. Okay. Yeah. He, he did all the stonework. He, there's a story Macquarie wrote about Hank Kaler and Mr. President going on a bear hunt called the great bear hunt, where they try to build artificial dens to attract the bears. So they know where the bears are going to be. And obviously it fails miserably. <laughs> that's, that's Hank Kaler. And, and these people are, there's, there's countless examples of that up here in, in Macquarie country. Everybody knows who these people were. They were real guys and girls, you know, Macquarie was a, he was an equal opportunity um, outdoorsman. He took his wife, his first wife, Helen was, was uh, Alpec's daughter, obviously. Yep. Uh, they took her a lot. She hunted and fished and he raves about her abilities to, outshoot them and outfish them at times and yeah he was even though he was a product of his time yeah uh he still was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve with including women in uh in the outdoors with him and like i said he his wife he claims was a much better shot than he was so yeah there you go yeah yeah i, I found that there was there was some stuff in the in the biography about that again the time, the time and place that he was writing and, and some of the stuff that he was weaving in was just not, again, like everything else, just not what you were seeing elsewhere at that time. Not, in the, yeah, not in the thirties. Yep. Definitely not. You know, that's, that's very unusual. Uh, I should point out too, you know, th there's a trilogy of his books. They're all called variations on the theme stories of the old duck hunters. So those came out in the seventies and eighties, uh, and then there's the treasury that you referenced. Yep. There's been several other volumes that are kind of um, compilations of the previous works, but there's a new volume out um, of all new material called Found Stories of the Old Duck Hunters. Uh -huh. It just got published in December. Uh, it's it's new. So Macquarie fans, the people who can't get enough of it would be probably very interested to know that and you can get it on Amazon or I'm sure you can order it through your local bookstore as well. Is that, um, is that one of the Evenson books? Yep. That okay. Dave Evenson compiled it and, and um, edited it and wrote intros to him. So he's got, there are three new Macquarie volumes out. Two of them, the first two are compilations of his newspaper columns. As I mentioned, he was the outdoor editor at the Milwaukee Journal for 20 years. And so those first two books that came out for three and four years ago, those are newspaper columns. The The book that just came out, The Found Stories, that is magazine work that hasn't been published before. Uh -huh. And there are, six, there are six new old duck hunter stories that people haven't read since, you know, they were originally published in the thirties and forties. Wow. So if you're a Macquarie fan, it's definitely worth noting that there's a new book out. Probably be the last one. Uh, you know, we found when I was doing the biography, I found, I think it was 140 magazine stories and only about half had been printed up to that point. Most of them have been printed now in book form. So, and this is the last one, and this is going to be, I think, 
unless somebody discovers something I haven't right. discovered in 20 years, uh, I think this is going to be the last one with old Duck Hunters Association stories in it. And, I, you know, I'm not actually involved in it other than doing the original research to find the stories. Dave did a magnificent job of putting it together, having it make sense, and then writing very nice introductions to each of the stories so people know who these people are, the cast characters, the locations, all that stuff. Yeah. So. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, that's that's a good tip. I I did not know that about the. I've got all three of those. I bought them recently after I picked up your bio and was trying to accumulate some of these. Um, I did not know that about the the third version there, the found story. So I'm kind of eager. I started reading the uh, the first one that Evenson did, and then I know there's do- dogs drink yeah, right and off, other dribble. Yeah, right, right off the reel yes. is the first one he did, and that was the title of McCory's column at the Milwaukee Journal. And then dogs drink and other dribble, and that's more columns from the journal and then <clears throat> like as and you know he wrote thousands of columns yeah. for the milwaukee journal over the course of 20 years he wrote literally i, I think we figured it was probably somewhere in the 2500 range 2500 columns and so there's a lot more newspaper material but a lot of it's news it's not really stories right. it's it's news it's field trial results and it's you know how did the fishing opener go this year and that kind of stuff, which is of limited interest if you're not a, you know, a, a Milwaukeean or a, like a historian you know, of sorts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's valuable information, but it's not probably interesting enough to put in a book. Yeah. So, but anyway, that's just, I thought that should, we, we don't want to gloss over that because Macquarie fans will find this new book really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of stuff out there and you can find most of this stuff. I was, uh, looking a little bit for the for the trilogy that Keith mentioned, and that one is a little harder to find at uh, at some of the normal what you would normally be used to paying for used books. Um, that one's that was yeah. pretty pretty coveted. I mean, under, understandably so. But uh, that's uh, I'll have to get my hands on that at some point. But I man, there's a, a couple different directions here. But I don't want to overlook 
what so obviously you were a fan of Macquarie. You ended up you ended up sort of, you know, kind of moving to that area or getting a cabin in that area. What was the at what point did you decide, hey, you were going to write the biography on Macquarie? How did that come to be? Well, it started out as, you know, the, the idea was to do a, a magazine story or maybe a couple of magazine stories. Okay. Primarily about going back and finding the places he hunted and fished. Because as you know, reading the stories and being familiar with this area, he, you know, he identified places and you can yeah. you can find them. If you read the clues, he didn't, you know come right out and say, well, in the case of the Brule River, he'd tell you exactly what hole he was fishing right. in or, you know, maze ledges or rainbow band, or you knew exactly where he was. So I originally it was the idea was just to go back and find as many of these spots as I could and, and hunt and fish them and write a magazine story or two. But then when I was working on the book in the nineties, there were still a lot of people around who knew Macquarie mm. personally. And I started hearing all kinds of stories and great stories and people talking about old man Macquarie, Gordon's father, and people who knew Al Peck and all that stuff. And it just occurred to me, you know, there's there's a book here. So uh, I contacted a couple different publishers. As you know, the Wisconsin Historical Society is the, ended up publishing the book for me, which is wonderful. They're the oldest, pub, one of the oldest publishers in the nation, actually. Wow. So, and they did a fantastic job with the publication and, and editing and everything else that goes into making a book, but they encouraged me. They thought it was a great story. And I spent about five years researching, talking to people. I went, flew out to California and interviewed McCory's only surviving family member, who was Tom Weeder, his, his son-in-law, Tom married Gordon McCory's daughter, Sally. Mm. And they, they lived in Monterey, California. They were in the news. He was a newspaper man too, just That's like right. Corey. And, and so, and I got lots of backstory from him. And they started working um, together back here, right? Yep. In Milwaukee. Tom, Tom was a police reporter for the Milwaukee journal when McCory was the outdoor editor. Yep. yep. And McCory's second wife too, after his first wife died in 51, uh, 52, 51, boy, I should know this <laughs> <laughs> 51. I guess she, she died. He married another, um, two years later, he married another, uh, Milwaukee journal reporter and, and they were married until he died in 56. Then she moved to England. And so a lot of, a lot of, unfortunately, I think a lot of research material went with her to England and mm. just kind of vanished into the mist. Um, wow. We're trying to recover some of it. But fortunately, Tom Weeder, Macquarie's son-in-law, had given me a lot of, I mean, what you would call artifacts, mementos, yeah. things that Macquarie would own, some decoys and fishing gear. And, and all that stuff now is on display, or much of it is. I loaned it all to the, the, the Barnes, okay. Wisconsin Museum. So if you go into the museum in the summer when they're open, they're not open at this time of year, but they have a Gordon Macquarie room. And it's got a bunch of McCory stuff, one of his typewriters, uh, pipes, uh, other personal items, duck decoys. You know, there's, there's a nice little collection of things. And that was mostly the stuff that Tom Weeder, McCory's son-in-law, gave me. And so it was nice to find a place. And that was my my promise to Tom when he gave it to me. So well, if I can ever find a place to put this stuff on public display, that's where it needs to be. Yeah. And so it is now. So. That's cool. I'll have to make a special trip down there this summer. Yeah, well, I know some people. I can get you in whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. We'll uh, we'll 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 pair it with a with happy hour on the dock. There you go. <laughs> <sighs> I was I had something on the tip of my tongue, but 
I forgot what it was. I, one of the things you commented on was again him sort of again being so in love with. Well, maybe we should let's do this. Let's we we keep saying Macquarie Country, and that's kind of goes along with Gordon Macquarie because he loved this area so much, and and you know he left those clues, and he in in ways he talked about the the area, what would be considered Macquarie Country. Um, what is, where is Macquarie country? What is it? You know, I, I, without like this idea of like hot spotting and stuff, I mean, Macquarie yeah, was, we'll was, keep it general, right? Yeah. We'll, we'll keep it general. He, he was born in Superior, Wisconsin. So right across the river from Duluth, you know, where you are. Yep. And, and he, that's where he began his newspaper career as well. He was born in 1900. And so he spent his youth all the way up until 1927 Basically, well, he, he went to college in Madison, but <clears throat> his whole youth and young adulthood was spent up in this area. Douglas County, Bayfield County, Washburn County, Sawyer County, the northwest corner of Wisconsin, much of which is the sand barrens, yes. the, the pine barrens that where the sharptails were. In Macquarie's day, there were there were thousands of sharptails up here because it had been logged off. Yep. Right about the time Macquarie was born, the logging industry was was basically taking all the trees down, <clears throat> the pines anyway, the marketable stuff. And so there were just vast areas of, of barrens, and it was grassland and scrub oak, and it was perfect for sharptails. There were even prairie chickens up yep. here yep. at the time. Um, so rough grouse and, and woodcock and white-tailed deer and things that are more dependent on, on woodlands were not as common when he was growing up. So through the teens and into the twenties, as the forest regenerated, then it became kind of Valhalla for you know for rough grouse. Mm-hmm. Yep. All that early succession forest came back in the thirties. And so he did all of his duck hunting, all of his deer hunting, all of his bird hunting for the first basically 30, 35 years of his life was done up in this area of wisconsin the northwest corner yeah and he had a million little potholes that he hunted for ducks they hunted some of the big lakes at the time that he was here they were in the process of damming some of the rivers and creating some of the impoundments um, places like the chippewa flowage and uh, nelson lake and some of the other impoundments up here didn't exist when he was young so that was a new endeavor up here and so there were new fishing and new duck hunting opportunities and he got around. He he hunted this entire area over as far as, you know, past Ashland over the, you know, there's a story about the Marengo River. I'm sure you've read yeah, that one. Yeah. And and, <clears throat> and so he bounced around all over. He fished out in the Apostle Islands on Lake Superior. Um, and it's really is kind of a heaven for, especially then in the 1920s and 30s, it would have been heaven for a, for a hunter and a fisherman. Yeah. And and that's what he cut his teeth on and he never got you know he never ever wanted to leave this country when the milwaukee journal made the the offer they made him that proverbial offer you can't refuse right you know they they gave him probably what is still one of the most coveted jobs in journalism if you're a hunter and a fisherman or an angler (laughs) you want to be the outdoor editor of some newspaper so uh he jumped at the opportunity and he left he also built his cabin which still stands that same year in 1936 when he left this country up in the the northwest and moved to milwaukee that same year he built the cabin that's on middle eau claire lake and uh and made that his headquarters 
And he would come up for extended periods every fall. He was the third week of October. He was always here because that's when he felt like the, the best duck flights were going to come. Through. Good time to be there. Yeah. yeah, it is. And it's, if you're not, if the ducks aren't in the rough grouse and the woodcock and, <laughs> and everything else is. So, yeah. uh, yeah, it's, it's about the perfect, perfect time of year. So he always took two weeks off right at the, at the tail end of October because he's a smart man. And then in, in May and in April and May, he'd be up here too, doing the early walleye fishing and whatnot. And yeah, yeah he was, uh, he knew what he was doing. He knew a good thing when he, when he saw it yeah. and he did not want to leave. But like I said, they just made him that offer. Nobody was ever going to say no to that. Here's your job, right? About hunting and fishing, right? Do it every day. And, and, and as I understand it, that was, it was maybe one of the first of its kind where he was kind of one of the first sort of full-time outdoor writers like that. Is that correct? That's correct. In a major newspaper, there might've been smaller local newspapers that, that had someone called an outdoor editor, Sure. but most of the content, if it was hunting and fishing related, was just covered by various people in the sports department, or even the editors of the newspaper would write something. This was a dedicated outdoor section in the Sunday paper. Usually he wrote twice a week, either Wednesdays, Thursdays, and then always on Sunday, he had multiple pages. So he had lots of column inches to fill. You know, there were multiple stories and some of them were really, <clears throat> excuse me, rough drafts for the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the magazine stories he did later. Yeah. So you'll read some of the same stories about the same characters. Uh, it's, it's interesting. They're just shorter versions in the newspaper. He was able to fill them out more for the magazine stories. Yeah. And so those are definitely, again, being so close to home, even though growing up, I didn't spend much time on the Wisconsin side of things. Now I do a lot more, but just knowing that he grew up in Superior and gosh, reading the stories about there be, like being sharp tails and prairie chickens right outside of Superior. And again, the landscape was a lot different as everything had been, had been logged off. I mean, that's just, it's so close to home. I just, I love that stuff. And the other thing too is I think there's a there's a connection for me in that growing up, one of the things that inspired me and sort of fueled my passion for the outdoors was the writing of Sam Cook, who I'm I'm assuming you know he was the outdoor writer for the Duluth News Tribune. Absolutely, yeah. And Sam is cut from the same cloth as McQuarrie. He yeah. has that same that same style and that same sensibility in his writing. Sam is one of my favorites. He's retired now, unfortunately. Yep. yep. <laughs> But yeah, he, for, for many, many years, he absolutely was almost a second coming of McQuarrie. So yeah, Sam is an excellent writer. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. He's got a, I have one of his books. I know he's written a few and I've, I've heard some, it's interesting. Uh, his name has, you know, I always know him as the local outdoor writer and I know, you know, I certainly recognize his talents, uh, but I've, I've had people from around the country mention his name and have come across his work and really appreciate it. And again, no surprise why, uh, but yeah, he was, uh, he, I always looked forward to every, every Sunday reading the outdoor section with Sam cook. And again, it was just one of those things in, in a, you know, even in the nineties, you know, I wasn't, we weren't waking up and going on our phones and reading blogs and stuff. You were, you were sort of waiting for that Sunday outdoor section to come out. Yeah. There was not the immediacy that we have now where you can just jump on the internet, look anything up. No, you, you coveted those Sunday, the, the Sunday newspaper outdoor sections were, uh, were a high point of the week every week Yeah, for me too. Indeed. So yeah, absolutely. I recall what I was going to ask you, how did you dig up the information on 
Macquarie's was it Macquarie's father who was kind of like the Canadian prairie guy? That was so fascinating how you opened the book. Yeah, he was he was one of yeah, he was a significant part of Canadian history yeah. because he was involved in the Northwest Rebellion of 1885. He was one of Steele's Rangers. And Steele's Rangers was a notorious, depending on who you ask, they were either good guys or really bad guys, mm. in quelling the last native uprising that Canada had in 1885. It was called the Northwest Rebellion. It was in Saskatchewan. Parts of it were in Alberta. And it, the the rebellion was led by a Métis who is um, uh, half French voyager, half um, Native American named Louis Réal. He led this rebellion and William McQuarrie, Gordon's father, was part of the small unit of, of cavalry, Steele's troopers, who went out and pursued him and caught him. And I found that out because... The only reason I know this is because um, Tom Weeder, Gordon McCory's son-in-law, gave me a box full of things, one of which contained a, a Queen Victoria medal that was inscribed with his name. And then it said, 1885 Northwest Rebellion steals troopers. Wow. And so I just started doing some research back. This is pre-internet research. So I spent a lot of time in libraries looking at microfilms. And looking up the history of Steele's troopers, and I discovered, yes, he was he's named many multiple times in the source material, and he was one of the key players in that whole that whole saga in Canada. So and it was shortly after that that he left Canada and came to Superior. Right. And so McCory Gordon McCory was born in Superior and, and William was born in Ontario spent he was a true pioneer i mean there were no the railroad hadn't gone through nothing had gone through canada at that point western canada was wide open wild country and he was there fighting alongside uh, he was originally went out there as a carpenter and got drafted as one of seals troopers when the uprising happened so yeah i thought that was interesting too which is why i opened the book with it it was it was kind of unexpected and yeah. a nice treat i'm a history nut right so it was really interesting to me. Yeah, indeed. It, it, talk about putting things into perspective. I mean, you just, are, we're so affected by a recency bias and, you know, what's gone on in the last five, 10 years. And it's, it's not that long ago that we're talking and this, this world was entirely a different, different place. Yeah. His, you know, William's obituary, you know, it's, it's not politically correct now, but the headline was last of the Indian fighters That's dies right. in yeah. Superior. That, that's the title of his his obituary. He was literally right in the heart of that, all those Indian wars that took place on the northern Great Plains. He just happened to be on the Canadian side. So we hadn't, as Americans, hadn't heard much about that battle. But in terms of significance, it was every bit as significant as um, Wounded Knee or as Little Bighorn or any of the battles we're familiar with. Um, it was really a big deal in Canada. So... Yeah, I would encourage anybody who's interested in, you know, Canadian history to to check that stuff out. It's a, there's a lot more available online now than there was in, back when I was trying to dig it up. Yeah, it's kind of a, a total sidebar, but I've it's I'm sort of got interested in it, you know, with a couple of references a show I'm watching. And um, are there any books or anything that jump out at you that you would recommend that are kind of like 
again, historical with Native Americans and sort of what the world and landscape was like in the 1800s. And just I'm thinking about like the wildlife and landscapes and the Native Americans and their relationship with everything. Anything jump out at you? Well, there's a book I'm just had. That's a that's a timely question. I just reopened a book that I'd read 15, 20 years ago that's called Lewis and Clark Pioneering Naturalists. Mm. And there's a million Lewis and Clark books out there. There's Lewis and Clark among the Indians. There's Lewis and Mark Clark among grizzlies. This book really focuses on their journals and all the discoveries mm. they made in the natural world on that trip. So, you know, they documented, they were the first um, Europeans anyway, to document pronghorn antelope and American badgers and black-footed ferrets. And they discovered so many things that, um, and swift foxes. I mean, I could go on and on yeah. and on. People just didn't know these things existed because nobody had gone out there with an eye towards, you know, the Native Americans knew about it, of course. Yeah. And the French voyagers who had been into that area occasionally knew about some of this stuff. But Lewis and Clark really documented uh, just hundreds and hundreds of new species. And, you know, ended up sending a lot of them back to, to Thomas Jefferson. You know, they'd box them up and send them back. And I guess a lot of that stuff, I haven't been to Philadelphia in many years, but I guess a lot of the specimens they collected are still viewable in in museums in Philadelphia. Wow. I love that kind of stuff. My bookshelf is full of Native American books and, you know, just that's I tend to read, um, you know, nonfiction historical pieces more than anything else. It's just my that's what I'm attracted to. I appreciate a good story like Macquarie told, but. You know, my bookshelf is literally just full of historical stuff. Well, that comes as no surprise having having read your Macquarie biography. The the history throughout was was very well done, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's you know, I, I anytime I can tie history into, you know, even if it's something current, if I can tie history into an outdoor story, I always try to. Yeah. You know, I wrote a story a, a couple of years ago now about how Custer was a fanatical hunter and and had a pack of dogs that he brought absolutely everywhere with him they were with him when he died the little bighorn some of his dogs he used to he the whole story was about him killing elk and grizzly bears and he was a phenomenal sportsman and he wrote under a pen name boy i'm gonna forget his pen name now um <laughs> nomad I think it was Nomad, he wrote under a pen name for Forest and Stream and some of the really early outdoor <laughs> magazines. He wrote stories about hunting. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that kind of stuff just, yeah, it always fascinates me. Yeah. So I'm glad there are other people out there who, who enjoy that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly glad there's folks like you out there that take the time to, do, like you said, before the internet, you were looking at, at the, going to the libraries and looking up stuff. It was a, that was a much taller task, uh, but thank you for doing it. <laughs> I spent it. a lot of time, yeah, I spent <laughs> a lot of time in dusty basements and libraries. It was it was yeah. I don't think my eyesight has recovered yet from squinting at microfilms. Uh, glad I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, circling back a little bit to Macquarie, one of the things that was again interesting in reading about that time and place, just knowing that you know transportation was was entirely different, and just thinking about you know how quickly it is for me to hop in the truck and buzz over to my cabin in Macquarie Country, and then reading about 
Gordon jumping on, was it the train to basically ride out from Superior to get to the Brule River, which is a, a yep. river that, you know, people may know. Um, it's, it's commonly referred to as the president, very historical river and of, of major significance in this part of the world. And Macquarie wrote about it a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even before the train, he, you know, in the, in the early days, they'd take a train um, south out of Superior to a little town called Gordon, yep. Wisconsin. Yep. And then they had to walk 16 miles from Gordon to where his cabin is. He, they originally built a little shack. So he and his dad would, during the course of a summer, do that a half a dozen times. Take a train to Gordon, walk 16 miles, work on this little this little shack they had built there on the shore of Middle Eau Claire Lake, so and crazy. walk back to the train station. And <laughs> yeah, there's a you know he he writes about the the roads and the condition of them. There's you your listeners may not know of Highway 27, but Highway 27 runs between Rule, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and Hayward, Wisconsin. It's a beautiful and highway. McCory's, yeah, and it's a beautiful smooth wide open highway yeah. now Macquarie called it the hayward road back in his day okay and he said it, it was a road in name only you did not want to go down that road in anything that didn't wasn't a you know four-wheel drive <laughs> vehicle you, it was impassable and there are little segments of that road where the original roadbed runs still rabbit hutch road is an example of it the original Hayward Road, and all you have to do is drive that in the spring, and you'll know exactly what he's talking mm. about. You do not want to go down. You need a half track to go down that road. So <laughs> th- it was a little different time when he's trying to get places in the 1930s. Pavement was was an exception rather than the rule. Yeah, yeah, that's that's wild. And and then again, when he moved to, down to Milwaukee and had to get back up to the cabin, which is quite a long ways, and it was uh, somewhat uh, described as like treacherous travel on on gravel roads. And again, yeah, just just so so different than than things are today. Yeah, it took him. He write he wrote in one story. It took him fourteen hours one time to get from Milwaukee. It's about four hundred miles from where he lived in Milwaukee to his, his cabin on middle Eau Claire Lake. And he wrote, it took him 14 hours one time because, because he, well, it was partly a blizzard. And yeah. it was, it, there were a bunch of reasons, but I mean, I can't even conceive of 14 hours to go 400 miles. So, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tom Weeder, his son-in-law said they always dreaded that when they go up for the summer, they go up for a few weeks in the summer. And he said, we just dreaded that drive because it was all gravel or <laughs> right, sand, and right. dust and dirt. And it was, there was no paved roads. So what a nightmare. Yeah. But you know, they were made of tougher stuff too. They, th- those old birds were those guys, you know, they didn't have Gore-Tex. They didn't have smart That's wool. For sure. They had itchy, scratchy wool. And <laughs> you know, he, he wore a, he wore a, um, Hudson Bay blanket coat for mm. a lot of his, his hunting and fishing and a leather fringed buckskin coat for a lot of his duck hunting. Well, you know, that's a far cry from what we're wearing these days yeah. when we're out in the, out in the woods. Yeah. They were tough, a lot tougher than me anyway. Now there's, there's nothing of significance with Gordon, Wisconsin. Is there? Nope. Nope. Okay. That was named after a different uh, lumber baron okay. basically. Uh, yeah, no, completely uh, just unrelated, just happened to be, um, and the Buckhorn Saloon in Gordon, it's still there. That was one of Gordon McCory's favorite hangouts. Oh, really? Back, back in the fit. Yep. <laughs> you can go in and have a beer at the bar that McCory used to sit at. I'm, I think he might have gotten thrown out of that bar a couple times. <laughs> there was too. some. There was some. There was yeah. There was some interesting uh, stories with respect to his, uh, you know, drinking a little bit, and you know th- that he was he was you know 
a nice drunk, but he would he would be tossed from a bar now and then, but he would always be back the next day and welcomed in with open arms, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. He, he he well, he was a newspaper man in right. the 30s. You know, that's a, that's kind of a common story. They they worked hard, they played hard, and they drank hard. Yeah. And he he certainly did that too. So, like if yeah, you've seen a, the oh if you've God. seen the show Mad Men, you know, rewind the clock of you know a couple decades, and it was maybe even more than that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. It's a it's a common story that there was the best the the the, the most profitable bar, profitable bar in town was always the one right across the street from the newspaper offices. <laughs> you know, they they never went broke because the staff as soon as they get off they all headed to the bar. Uh, yeah, he was not a teetotaler. Yeah, I my one of my very first it was either my first or second deer hunt. That was taken on by a by a mentor of mine who lived up the street, and he had a cabin near Gordon, Wisconsin, and that's where we went deer hunting. We did. I remember we went to a bar on the Friday evening before uh, before deer season. Actually, this would have been second weekend, I think. So deer season was already open. I don't recall if it was the Buckhorn Saloon, but was it in Gordon? It was. Yeah, it was. It's the only bar in Gordon well, now. Maybe so. that's where it was. <laughs> I remember being. There it was. was a, I was in heaven. You know, deer deer season. And, there was a bowling alley that had a bar too, but that burnt down. So okay. that was, and that was a long time ago. So if this was in the last ten or fifteen years, then definitely you were in the Buckhorn. Okay. Well, the only other the only other place, if there's a bar on a lake around there somewhere it may have been i don't recall exactly oh uh, well there's yeah i mean there's lots of lodges yeah. with bars around yeah. st croix flowage and that stuff yeah. so yeah it could have been one of those too but if it was in town then it was definitely the buckhorn yeah so, that's great <clears throat> that's a that's a great place you know that was bud grant would occasionally go in there too okay. God rest his soul you know he just passed away that's right and and bud you know uh interestingly enough bud knew gordon mccrory personally because ah. bud because Bud and Bud was a fan of Gordon McCory's writing. Um, he had contacted me last year. We were going to get together and, and talk about it because I wanted to get his reminiscences about McCory. We never made it happen. But Bud had a lake place here just outside of Gordon. And, and he used to spend every summer and a lot of falls up here hunting. And his health kind of over the last few years didn't allow him to come up as much as, as normal as he had in the past. But yeah, he spent a lot of time up here, deer hunting, duck hunting, grouse hunting. You know, he, Bud was a, he was a well-known outdoorsman in this part of the country. And yeah, he, because he grew up in Superior too. Oh, he did. He had been, oh yeah. Bud I didn't was know born that. Superior. Okay. Yep. Yep. And Bud went to Superior Central High School, just like McQuarrie. And so, yeah, it, there's supposedly, rumors that bud dated mccory's daughter sally at one hmm, point interesting i've never been able to confirm that and that was one of the things i had hoped to ask him about but again when the old timers go you know there's no bringing them back and all that history is lost with them yeah so yeah. well we I got a couple more things here before we wrap up one, one thing that you don't read about in mccory's work and i've in, in just sort of perusing your website i'm not seeing but uh wild turkeys and I, I know you see plenty of wild turkeys now, but I just, I find it so interesting, the, the story arc of the, the wild turkey. And um, I know I, I had Mike, uh, Mike Amon on here about a year ago, and we talked about the reintroduction of wild turkeys into Bayfield County and um, how they're doing very well. But what do you know of the, the history of a wild turkey in, in, this, in this part of the world, Keith? Anything? By his time, uh, by by the time McCory was born in 1900, they had basically been extirpated. Right. If they even if they were even here, I know the southern Wisconsin, 
had wild birds. Okay. Pre-European settlement. I know southern Minnesota did, having grown up down there. You know, I was lucky enough to get a permit. Minnesota's first modern era hunt in 1978, I got a permit. Okay. And there were just a few birds then, and they were all right down on the Iowa border. And, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot since then. As far as I know, Gordon McQuarrie never wrote a single word about wild turkeys. Yeah. I just don't think he saw them. In fact, even geese were yeah not the canada geese in particular were not very common that's really i've heard that that's interesting and and they're so you know they're so common now they're everywhere now just like the turkeys are they're everywhere so those are you know big wildlife success stories you know things have changed a lot you know um mccory it was a red letter day if he saw a goose when he was out hunting yeah i mean really it always always made it into the newspaper if he saw geese you know it, it always was newsworthy to him so yeah definitely uh that's that's one of the wild turkeys and and geese especially canada geese he used to occasionally get cracks at snows and blues when they'd sometimes they would sneak over the border into wisconsin and he'd kill a couple but yeah. um canada geese was just uh, rare as hen's teeth up here yeah so and you know and in his lifetime too the sharp tail population up here crashed right. and prairie chickens disappeared completely uh, the landscape has changed so much just in his lifetime by the 1950s the forests were all growing up again now so yeah uh yeah it it changed a lot and again, that's one of those things that I was sort of comment. You know, so much of of our perspective is shaped by you know the previous decade or maybe two, but you don't have to go back that far to see these massive changes. You know, the the as you alluded to, essentially around the turn of the century, nineteen hundred, everything was logged off here, and it was there basically weren't big forests and trees in a, in a lot of areas, and then the early successional grows back and along with that comes a boom of species that that are are ad- adapted to that habitat type but then things change and again it's just they're dramatic changes that we don't necessarily see because they didn't happen 20 years ago but they happened he uh, was you know and mccrory was cognizant of that correct he, you know was a huge champion of aldo leopold he and yep. Le- leopold he knew leopold personally he hunted with leopold at the shack and they duck hunted over on the mississippi river and he used leopold as a as a source so aldo leopold was a major figure in helping shape gordon mccrory's philosophy on conservation let's call it that, you know, he, McCory saw all these changes happen in his lifetime and, uh, they never saw deer when he was a kid. Uh, it was a real, real rarity for them to see white-tailed deer in Northwest Wisconsin, but by the fifties and even by the early forties, there were deer everywhere in this part of Wisconsin. And he wrote about all these things, obviously for the newspaper. And he used Aldo Leopold as a source, as his, you know, his expert. Yeah, uh, and you can't hardly have a better expert than Aldo Leopold. Yeah, yeah, and there were there were some other ties that you drew. Uh, listeners will know Aldo Leopold as well as maybe uh, Sigurd Olson, who I have not yep. I have not read. I mean, I've, it's kind of almost embarrassing. He wrote a lot about the Boundary Waters, and I don't know much about Sigurd Olson, but he had ties to Macquarie as well. Is that correct? Did they both grow up in the same area? Well, Sig spent a lot of time in, he taught at Ashland at yeah. the college there. And Sig and McCory, so I had this conversation with, with Sigurd Olson's son. Okay. Right when my biography came out 20 years ago, we can't actually determine if Gordon and Sigurd ever met. But Sig's son said, 
Macquarie was a constant topic of conversation at our dinner table because my dad loved his conservation writing. Okay. And Sig was in the same, they were, they both fished the Namakagan River incessantly. You know, yeah. well, both men called it their favorite trout, st- trout stream, <laughs> and they were there at the same time. I have to believe they met, but we just can't confirm it. So, and, you know, Sig obviously is another one of those guys who, if, if you haven't read Sigurd Olson's work, you really need to. Mm-hmm. There's a philosopher. I mean, that's, he, he really, he was one of the first people to, at least that I know of, to, to say, Humanity needs wilderness. It's not. Uh, it's not optional. There is a deep-seated need in humans to experience wilderness. Uh, without it, we are less as a species, and uh, I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. Yeah, yeah. As would as would Macquarie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He did too. They just put it in different terms. That's all. Yeah, indeed. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's great stuff, Keith. It was great to to get a little conversation behind the scenes and, and some more tidbits there. There's, there's so many, so many little stories for, again, for anybody, you know, I know I've, we've got listeners in this area and, and of course, many people that, that, uh, this won't be hit as close to home, but, uh, there's some great stuff in there and some, and a lot of history, which is really cool. Well, I did, we didn't even, we didn't even talk about quail hunting in Arizona no, or, no, no. or sharp tails in, uh, in Montana and the Dakotas. That's okay. We'll yeah. do another show. Sometime. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to plant the seed for, for the next time we have Keith on the show. I did. I, I think I came across and you mentioned a lab earlier and I wanted to bring this up because, um, in recent years I've, I've seen photos that you put up on Facebook of a, of a beautiful little orange and white setter. And I always smile cause it reminds me of, of my young setter, Rose, have you, have you had setters for a long time? Nope. First setter. Okay. That's um, what I thought. She's, she's sleeping at my feet right now. I love it. Uh, She's, she's either the best thing or worst thing that's ever happened to me. I can't decide (laughs) yet. (laughs) I'm not a young man and trying to keep up (laughs) with a young setter is, is challenging, but you know, she's breathing new life into my, into my outdoor pursuits. Yeah. You know, I, a while back, I just, I decided my roots are in upland hunting. I did a lot of waterfowl and big game, and I've hunted uh, doll sheep in Alaska, and I've been all over the place doing all kinds of things. But my heart is is upland bird hunting, and I've always wanted a setter. So here we go. I got one. Yeah. How old <laughs> is she now? Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> She's two. She just turned two years okay. old. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah. So my, mine will be three next month. Um, so yep. very similar. Well, well, she might be the death of me, but uh, I'll send <laughs> the picture I send you will be of me and her. So good. you can at least get a look at her. <laughs> good. Good. Well, I can't wait to meet her. Yeah, no, we got to get together and do some hunting this fall. You know, uh, just based on what I've been seeing this spring so far, I have not paid much attention to drumming, but you know, I'm seeing a few grouse around. Good. So I think they fared even with the, the horrible winter you know, they're, they're equipped for it. Right. So I think they, they've done okay. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. My take is there. I mean, there was, they had plenty of snow, whether or not the, the conditions of that snow maintained all winter. And it was, I don't, would you agree? I felt like it was a, it was a fairly mild winter other than the length of it. But during, you know, throughout January, we had a lot of temps in the twenties and didn't have a lot of uh, really, really terribly cold weather throughout. Well, I was monitoring that remotely. Oh, that's right. But, <laughs> that's right. Uh, you are right the snow i mean it's i think we're second or third all time yeah. snow levels up here and yeah. and so the snow was really deep but uh based on my propane bills you know it probably wasn't as cold as it has been <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good pretty good monitor 
<laughs> well, I mean, you got base everything on the realities of life. Indeed. You don't want to run out of propane up here in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for a, a good spring and uh, good nesting and hatching conditions for the grouse, and uh, we'll have to we'll have to poke around in the woods this fall and see what we find. Definitely. All right. Well, it was great talking to you. Oh, thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate the time today. This was this was super enjoyable, and and again, a lot of stuff here, folks. If if, they, if this was their first exposure to Macquarie and things caught their interest, definitely do some digging and pick up Keith's book. I'll put links and stuff in the show notes, and we'll we'll get Keith back on again to talk about some more of his worldly travels and other adventures. And I'm looking forward to it, my friend. All right. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. All right, Keith, hang with me for just a second. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.